we are live on Facebook once again. Welcome back to the live stream every Tuesday. I'm Scala, of course, joined once again by hip hop artist slash ELM Tokyo co-chair, Timid, Jay Carter. What's going on? Good morning. Well, morning for me. That's right. Time for yeah. you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> get canceled because we also have my longtime campaign manager and founding partner, Brian Bystroff. He is Andre Bystroff himself. Welcome, Andre. Hey, how are you, folks? Good, good. Although I do have to say I have COVID, um, so maybe I shouldn't be saying I'm doing well. Luckily, I'm not feeling too sick, but it is something that has happened, and I've tried to stay on high alert. Unfortunately, it has hit me. I believe this is the first time I've had it. And so, you know, a couple weeks ago, Jay, I had said that the pandemic wasn't over, and this is proof. It's very much alive and well. Yeah, and sorry that you, you know, but it sounds like you're, you're faring pretty well. Even though I, I can hear yeah, a little in your voice, but I am, I am vaccinated, and thank God I am doing well. Hopefully, in the next few days, uh, God willing, I'll be over this. Yeah. Do you lose your your taste or any of that? No, luckily I didn't, and. Weirdly, I didn't lose my energy. Um, I, I had kind of like that sick feeling, like I can't really describe it. It wasn't really congested, but I felt sick, but I wasn't weak. Usually when you're sick, you're weak. I was kind of going off the walls this past week. It's kind of odd. Uh, well, maybe you've identified a new uh, sub-variant of, uh, of COVID, <laughs> an energetic variant. Yeah, right? Dang. Well, you know, it's rough. It's still rough out there. We just saw something that said cases are, are going up in New York with Omicron. Hey, Jay, did we lose you? It looks like Jay froze in time. I hope this isn't a new side effect of COVID. Jay has turned into a still image on our screen. <laughs> Andre, you're seeing what I'm seeing, right? I, yes, that's that is definitely that is definitely Jay frozen in midair. Jay is a zombie. All right. Well, this is the first. Uh, hopefully, we get Jay back. Let's see. He might be messaging me from the other world. That his computer went blank. Okay. Well, at least I will let him let him let him restart. So yeah. All right. So hopefully, Jay will return. In the meantime, we do like to start off our live streams with something light. Of course, we're gonna get into Russia and Ukraine and some heavier topics as we proceed here. But the light topic we have chosen for this week, because I know it's kind of right up your alley, is the Kanye documentary on Netflix. I know you saw all three parts. What are your thoughts? Um, I mean, so Kanye was a, was a very big deal for you know people of my generation and, and I'm sure for even younger hip hop fans. Uh, so watching a lot of the earlier footage is great. Uh, having said that, giving, you know, knowing a lot of the kind of background information myself prior to watching this, I was curious at the kind of few omissions there. Uh, it was, it was nice seeing my man Rhymefest. After watching, you know, what's interesting. I think you would appreciate this. So after watching, uh, uh, the third, the third, uh, 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 episode, I actually thought to myself, I would give up all of the discography after my beautiful dark twisted fantasy for like a solid third Rhymefest album. That would wow. be dope. Um, yeah, no, I mean, like I miss Rhymefest, man. Like I'm sure he's he's creating like a lot of dope stuff. I was also surprised not to see like Mickey Halstead anywhere in the documentary. No, like Twan Gabs, a lot of the early Chicago cats. That would have been cool. So that's interesting. You would trade all of Kanye's discography following My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy for another Rhymefest album. For a really solid Rhymefest album, uh, like akin to Blue Collar, yes, I would. Yes, I, I mean, for me personally, yeah. you know what I mean? Like in an alternate dimension where this could possibly exist. Okay. I'm not mad at that. I mean, I, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy might be my favorite Kanye album. I, of course, love College Dropout, Late Registration and Graduation. Those are the four, though, right? I mean, aside from that, I can kind of do without I, them. I love 808s, you know? And that's, by the way, that's another thing that was kind of omitted, right, from, from the documentary. It definitely showed the, the tremendous weight that uh, uh, his mother's loss had on him. 
but it didn't really showcase the fact that he also lost his fiance right at the same time. This his his uh, uh, high school college sweetheart, right? Somebody that was with him from his come up. And so, you know, I guess that could have been some of the traction that was originally around the Netflix documentary where it wasn't getting released without some cuts and some edits. So maybe there were certain things that were around that. It seemed a little disjointed because you did have the beginning of his career, not even the beginning of his career, but it's picked up at a time prior to him joining Rockefeller and working on that first album. And it was that when you saw the making of the first album and then it kind of stopped. And the third episode was kind of all over to me. I mean, it, it didn't really follow that same trajectory. It was just like, these are my experiences with Kanye from that point on. I kind of fell out of touch with him. And over the years, I kind of saw him every once in a while. But it wasn't that. that right. I mean, it's, it's sped up. It's sped up. Though, I mean, look, man, Cootie's daughter is adorable. That, that was fine. I didn't, you know, I didn't mind him bringing himself a little bit into the documentary as well. I like, look, most of all, I hope he got paid. I hope he got paid really, really well from that 30 million or whatever from that Netflix money. You know what I mean? I hope a lot of that went to him. So, yeah, that's actually a point I wanted to discuss with you as well, because I know we were kind of musing over that. Like who who would own that footage? Who got paid? We understood that 30 million dollars was the price tag on this Netflix documentary. But obviously it was Cooley who took the footage. Did the footage and these I guess this kind of opens the door to some legal questions, but was Kanye paying him all along? Was it a uh, work for hire? Because right. paid him. And, and, you know, and at some point, and, and at some point, potentially the record label and, and all that. You also, by the way, if you saw in like the, the, the some of the last uh, footage of the recording albums in Wyoming and stuff, you still had Dame Dash over there and stuff. You know what I mean? You don't know who has any kind of ownership of any kind of videography but, or whatever. True, but here's the point that I think also needs to be said. Even if, let's say, Kanye owned all of that footage because he commissioned the uh, Cootie to take it, Cootie, I guess, made the documentary, so he was only intellectual property of that work of art, right? So he still needs to be, be unless, unless he sold it. Early. Documentary. Unless he sold that. Jay Ivy, I think, was was listed as a producer too. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. So I mean, who knows? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to parse that money. All I'm saying is that. I hope that Cootie made made some scratch off that. You know what I mean? Jay is back. Tim, we were just talking about uh, who got that $30 million. Do we think that Kanye got most of it or was Cootie paid? Yeah, I don't know. I heard I heard what you're talking about as far as like the intellectual property and stuff, but I mean I would I would hope I would hope Cootie made a a, a sizable amount. I mean, 30 million, there's a lot to go around. You yeah. know. Um, I'm sure he needs it more than Kanye does. Yeah, go yeah. go revamp Channel Zero for the new generation of Chicago rappers and you know what I mean, artists that are coming up. Yeah, so I mean, I, I would imagine there was there was something that was agreeable for for all of them for it to even come out because you know especially with as erratic as Kanye is and um, his status, he could have definitely blocked it from being released. I would imagine. So yeah, we were. We were we were actually mentioning the fact that there was potentiality, you know what I mean? That there was actually some of that earlier, right? He was trying not to release the footage unless Netflix cut some things. So, oh, really? yeah. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, yeah. It was a big thing you put out. In there who would have to sign releases, too. That's not easy to do. I mean, it's one yeah. thing like that. You're going around with a camera filming everybody you see in the year 2003. Now, 2022, you want to release this on Netflix? I mean, good luck tracking down some of these people. That sounds like a logistical nightmare as, as a lawyer, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, would that, would that be all right, though, if they if they knew? Like, because they had kind of uh, somewhat of consent, because he said uh, often, like, he's filming a documentary. Right. And that would be the distinction. Did they consent to being filmed, or did they consent to appearing in a documentary? It's kind of an odd issue. Hey, Franny. It's an odd issue with maybe giving consent to appear in a documentary back in 2003, but did they expect it for it to come out now on Netflix, on this platform, all these years later? I mean, it can get a little thorny. Yeah. So, I'm, hey, I don't know. Um, hey, I'm not complaining. I'm happy that this thing exists, right? Now, some of this footage we had seen over the years in bits and pieces, but never this comprehensively, and I actually did not know that Kanye had someone filming his every move back in the day. That was a surprise to me. Right? I'm really happy that that happened. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it was really surprising. Um, I thought it was a pretty good documentary. Um, you know, a lot of interesting stuff. You just wish it started a couple of years earlier. Why? I mean, like I said, man, you, then you would have had the Mickey Hallstead, the Twan Gaps, you know, Rhyme Fest years. You would have had a little bit more of that, the, the kind of early group stuff. Go-getters? Huh? Right. Go-getters? Yeah. You know, it would have been cool. Yeah, I like yeah. to see that. No, he makes a good point because in the very beginning, he's already saying he's a platinum producer. So right. It's kind of hard to root for him as someone coming from nothing because he already starts off the documentary at a pretty high spot. Now, you do root for him trying to get on as a rapper, trying to make that transition from producer to rapper. But when, when it starts, he already is somebody, right? Yeah, 40, right. 40, 50, 40, 50 grand a track, you know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. He's not exactly struggling like in, in the way you might expect someone to be struggling here. Yeah, it would, yeah man, that it would have been interesting to see more of how he got from just the dude in Chicago to making that beat for Jay. And because that's right. kind of like I said, that's kind of how it started. Like, yeah, I've already got I got Jay under my belt. And it's like, OK, well, how did you get there? How right to that. Well, the first time I ever heard of him was, I believe, the Mad Rapper album. And I thought his name was Kane. I read it as Kane, but that's the first time I heard the name. Oh, he, he produced some of the tracks on there and he was an up and coming producer. Uh, but that was pre-J, you know? That was with Derek Angelo and the Hitmakers. All right. It's, it's, there was, Hitman. watching how all of that played out later, like, cause we, what we know we know now, some of it is, it makes it even funnier. Cause I remember there was, and I think I sent you a message <laughs> about this. There was a point in there where Kanye was listening to, um, a beat, I guess he was in a car and then Quali was there and uh, he was playing his beat and Quali's like, yo, yo, can I get that? And Kanye's like, yeah, yeah, you get this. And like, we know <laughs> now that that ends up being a Jay song. Yep. Like, yeah, what happened there? How did Kanye- I do want to talk about the whole raucous thing because that's interesting in hindsight. I know Jay, you and I were talking about this. It kind of seems now that Kanye would have been a good fit for raucous, but that's because we have the benefit of hindsight. I think after the college dropout came out, he kind of bridged that gap to the point where we weren't even really talking about mainstream versus underground distinctions anymore. And of course, that was happening organically as it was with the internet and things like that. But kind of after that point, we were looking at music in a different way and it, it all seemed to come together. But prior to that, there was kind of a hard line between mainstream hip hop and underground hip hop. And Raucous was really trying to present itself as the alternative to the shiny suit of Bad Boy and the mainstream stuff. And we might not have the big budgets they do and the most expensive producers in the world, although we do have DJ Premier and, and hot producers, but we're gonna give you the real authentic hip hop and we're gonna do it in a great way that's gonna be an alternative to what you see in the mainstream. Um, so there was kind of that hard line there. And, and, and Kanye, I think, struggled. He kind of took elements from both, but it was a hard sell for him, I think, for Rockefeller and for Raucous for those reasons, because he was kind of in the middle of both. Right. The question I had two two points out of that is one, if Kanye would have signed to Ruckus, would Ruckus still be around today? Or would Kanye even be the size of an artist that he is today? I don't think Kanye would have been, well, if he, if he remained on Ruckus, I mean, because what if he just dropped one project to Ruckus and then went on to Rockefeller? I mean, that, that could happen also. But I guess right. the to answer this question as what if he rem if he only was on raucous and you know would raucous have become a huge major mega label or i don't think so i think that kind of kind of would have fizzled out maybe the same way like you know Plum village or dilated peoples not that they don't do their numbers or whatever they, they do well but it wouldn't have been the, the mega star with that right. in my opinion i mean they also wouldn't have had as much money to clear the some of those samples exactly that's a really good point exactly. they wouldn't have they wouldn't have had the budget overall to make the record, to put it out and to promote it. Now, it's a little bit of a misnomer. I think that Raucous was independent because they did have major label funding. Uh, Black on both sides went gold. They had big records, but it still wasn't, you know, Def Jam. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't on that level at the time. And that was a, a lot more money than, than Raucous. Was doing. Um, and Quali also, you know, he, he did dip into the mainstream with one or two songs and right. just never never took well, just to get by which was produced by kanye right right and that was so. and that's kind of what i was talking about with that blurring of the lines kanye really was doing that and so some people say well he was kind of dipping his toe into the raucous pool he, he would have been a natural fit but you know it, people had a hard time seeing him as 
a rapper on the level of a Quali or a Most Def or a Pharrell Mod. Rockets was trying to be that, you know, we're, we're the lyrical guys. Like, you know, we're, we're really authentic MCs. Kanye was good. And I've said this also, part of the college dropouts charm was that technically he wasn't that advanced, but you were cheering for him because he was the producer trying to make it as a rapper. He was like the little engine that could, you know what I mean? But but from a, from a technical standpoint, he really wasn't there. I mean, he's running out of breath a lot, punching in all over the place. Lyrically, he wasn't that advanced. I know we talk about he had the rhyme fest rhymes, which were great, but that's an issue in itself at the time. <laughs> Having yeah. a ghostwriter wasn't something that you had if you were considered a great MC. Now, now the rules are a little, little bit different. But back then, I was like, that rock was to keep it real label, right? That wasn't really keeping it yeah. real. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. And but and speaking of that, keeping it real, um, and and the ruckus and and the quali and all of that connection, because um, they really quali and most def, they really helped to champion Kanye um, in those early days and helped him put him on stages and stuff. Um, did you see when he was on Drink Champs and he said Kanye said, "Oh, I just want to apologize to the backpackers because." You know, uh, I pretended like I was one of y'all. Now, nah, really, I'm from the streets and I just used y'all to get on. And like he made it very clear or he's saying now that he was faking it with the backpack type of style just because he wanted to to get in. Uh, mm -hmm. But he, that was, wasn't him. So I would he really been I guess he was still would have been a fit and ruckus because um, he would have been perpetrating. But like, you know, like that's still. No, but, but no, but I'll tell you this, though, I think some of that was shining through some of that faking the funk because Talib Kweli used to bring Kanye on stage with him back in those days. And the Kweli audience didn't really get Kanye. He right. tried and he had the backpack on. He tried to like, you know, I'm one of y'all, but he was rapping about things that didn't really mesh with the, the raucous aesthetic. They just didn't. Kweli was the story. He, Kanye would have a line like, um, you know, I got a white, an all white outfit with a white girl on my arm. And he thought that was cool. The crowd wasn't buying that. That wasn't, that wasn't what the raucous fans wanted to hear. You know? Right. Well, Kweli's audience is is the really the the the, the pro black and and whatnot. He spoke about that in a Vlad TV interview, and he yeah. mentioned that exact line. And he was just like, you know, they weren't feeling him at first, but we kept pushing him, you know, out there because we, you know, thought he was gonna could be something. And right. um, and the only yeah. verse people knew of his was on the Jay Z album. And again, it's it's funny. Like now, like you don't really appreciate the division, right? But back then, like if you you were rapping on a Jay Z album. You weren't considered at home to much of that raucous crowd. They, right. they, they took pride in being alternative. Like it's like like people make people make a joke now. Like I like them better when they were underground and that kind of stuff. People people mock it nowadays, but that was a real thing. The backpacker thing was like we're anti-mainstream. Right. You know. So I think we got we got to mention we can't let this go by. We got to mention in, in any discussion about this documentary is how much of a prick Kanye's dentist was. God dang. <laughs> That dude. Wait, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? That is crazy. What a crazy take. This I actually, was a prick. What are you talking about? What do you mean, man? He was trying to get some footage while like this dude is trying to keep everything fucking sterile. Yeah, That's but after, even no, the even he allowed him to film, but just the, the way he was talking with Kanye and, and about oh. what was happening, like his attitude was just horrible. Like, Jesus Christ. I guess I, I missed that part of you know what I mean? Yeah, no, not the, the filming part, that initial part where he's like, wait, what are you bringing a camera in here? For? I get that. But afterwards, just their dialogue afterwards, he was just, and even if you go to like Twitter and I know, you know, you can't gauge always, but people were trending like, Jesus Christ, this has got to be the worst <laughs> dentist in history. His bedside manner is horrible. I'm assuming this guy <laughs> lost a lot of clients. Kind of being in his face when he was trying to do some major surgery on the guy's mouth. No, even just even in the consultation moments, it was just his way of speaking was just quite rude. Just like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, Tim, did you see the slop post, uh, slop funk dust on Kanye on the documentary? Uh, what did he say? I think he said he, he, he it was one of his smart ass posts, but I think he said something like he uh, he saw it and he was inspired to go make the worst beat he ever made in his life on FL Studio. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. I but, saw that. uh, I bring that up because that was actually the a &R. Shout out, shout out to Slop, uh, if you're watching. That was the A&R that signed me to Raucous a couple of years after that. Um, the A&R, though, that, that was in a documentary was a different guy. He was actually in favor of Kanye, but the heads weren't. But I think it kind of goes to show you that, that attitude that you kind of see uh, around Kanye. And, and, and to me, it's, it's, it's that whole mainstream thing. But, but also, let's, 
like I was saying, I do think there's an element of him just not really being technically that advanced, even today. I mean, I don't know, Jay, do you disagree with this? I don't think he's one of the best pure rappers in the world. I think he makes great music and he has made great music, but. Well, I, well, I actually, hold on a second. Then there's, there's a distinction there, but uh, sorry, I'm just responding to some of my canvassers being out there. But uh, um, I think that there is a distinction between, you know, uh, dense lyricism or, you know, some sort of uh, deep messages in lyrics. Mm -hmm. Sure. But in terms of purity, I think he is quite genuine on his rhymes, and that's why people appreciate him. I think that there is a certain, uh, and particularly genuineness, right? A certain uh, authenticity, right? A certain, uh, you know, a certain seeming transparency between what's inside and what he's putting out there that you can appreciate, even if, you know, uh, certain things are obvious facades, you know, the, the I'm a God and Jesus kind of stuff around, you know what I mean? Well, what about that, just right? in terms of technical MC ability and lyricism? I, hold on a second, man. I'm coming at this from a, from a writer's standpoint. The, the complexity of poetry and lyrics does not necessarily make them great or kind of less so. It's really about playing around with form. And I think he plays around with structure. He plays around with form. He plays around with meter. And I think That's that adds to his greatness and to his appeal. I think there's a, the, the, the certain rawness of the material makes it great and, you know, rise above, right? There's, you know, there's a difference between- On the level of like a- I'm saying there's a difference between a Kandinsky and like a Basquiat, you know what I mean? Like if you're talking about form and structure and stuff, you know what I mean? So it's- but again, as a lyricist, as a technical MC, is he on the level of a I can let you speak to that, man. I can talk about from a writer's perspective okay, and stuff. Look, man, there's some there's some verses of Kanye's that are dope as fuck. You know what I mean? There's some that are less so. I I I I, I almost pause myself. No, I, I and I get I get what, what Andre is saying. Um there is there's a lot of there's a lot of form to to how Kanye rhymes, and it's always has been. And I mean is he is he as technical as like you said someone like a Nas or an, an M or something like that? No, but I think it's you know it, it depends on what you're you're looking for. Um, he does play around with different types of forms and cadences and and just his delivery and whatnot. Um, See, so to me, I, no, I was gonna say I think that the whole is often greater than the sum of its parts with him. And right. I think it comes out really good a lot of the time. Sometimes I don't like it, but that's, what's, that would make, that's what makes a great artist too, that you're able to try different things and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I think he's really good at being an artist and creating good music with a lot of people's help sometimes. I just don't think if you're gonna look at strict technical MCing, he's an elite. I think he's good. I think he's certainly above average, but I don't think he's like a nine or a 10 out of 10 on that level. I, don't, I wouldn't put him up there with a Nas or a Jay-Z or an Eminem or, or a Big L or a Most Def, you know? All right. Most deaf is a beast. Feral Monch is a beast. Yeah. Right. Anyway, it's an interesting discussion. I think we've maybe talked about it enough. Yeah. But it was a good documentary. You know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not there to listen to Donda 2 yet. So, yeah. So let's move on to more, I guess, serious topics. Uh, we named a few, of course, Russia and Ukraine being a big one. Andre, I wanted to get your take on this because you were born in Russia, right? So I was born in the Soviet Union uh, when when I left. It was uh, Leningrad. When I came back, it was St. Petersburg. But, you know, so my grandfather, uh, who, who raised me while with my grandmother, he was born in a Ukrainian shtetl. And uh, it was the first uh, first day of the Ukrainian crisis that his his little village where he, you know, where he was born and stuff. And he had to flee, you know, the Germans, the Cossacks and you know, a bunch of the anti-Semites in uh, the Soviet kind of uh, influence and stuff. And uh, yeah, now it's taken over by the Russians. And, uh, you know, I, I think that I share kind of my family's thoughts on this and my own. It's just fuck Putin, fuck the Russians in this. This is uh, well, a travesty. I appreciate the sentiment. People are comparing this to Hitler invading Poland. Do you think it's on that level? No, it's, I mean, look, it's not on that. Uh, from, from Putin's perspective, I think he's looking at it like this. What are you guys going to really do about it? 
He's watching what happened, what's been happening with China for the last 40 years. They took Tibet. They took, they're taking, they flew planes over Taiwan. They do it at any given point. They've now uh, are perpetuating genocide. They, they've killed the Falun Gong, the Uyghurs. Most of the world doesn't really do anything because of how much commerce is interwoven in, in you know, our foreign policy, uh, particularly in regards to China. Uh, and now with Disney and everything else, right? It's interwoven in culture too. Uh, now, so Russia thinks, hey, listen, we're going to take back some of the former Soviet satellites. We're going to take back some of these countries that are nearing, nearing us, and they're going to try to test us. And it's really going to be very interesting to see how much the world pressure is not going to have on Russia, but China and its relationship with Russia. Right. Because yeah. that's their last kind of economic stronghold in terms of a, a financial partner. And that's going to be very interesting to see. Yeah. Um, people have said, you know, it's given excuse for a reason why the Putin was, they say Putin was pushed to this because of the, the attempt of getting Ukraine into NATO because they didn't want NATO on Russian borders, even though you know, there's already four countries on Russia's border that are in NATO. Um, any, any thoughts on, on that idea there? Like, is, is so, that a reason to go into it or like, does Ukraine not, no, no, look, not, not, a, decide not, for themselves? no, look, not at all. Right. So, so NATO is an interesting concept. There are, are, are folks and I've, I've been hearing, you know, pundits talk about the fact that, Hey, listen, you know, NATO was supposed to, uh, deal with the Soviet Union. There's no more Soviet Union. Like why, you know, why is that still exist when it's the Russian Federation now? Well, the, realistically, it's a lot of former Soviet satellites that don't want to have anything to do with the tyrannical control of Vladimir Putin. And they don't want to have autocratic puppet governments that are placed uh, there by the Kremlin. And so they are the ones that are kind of fueling and energizing the existence of NATO. It's not Western powers that are trying to keep it in existence. In fact, it's a really shitty political talking point uh, in, in American politics. Most Americans don't really support NATO prior to this, you know, conflict. And so, or, or a lot of Americans just don't know what it is, right? So it's not, it's never been a popular thing. And it's, you know, it's, it's always been kind of a losing political thing in, within the United States, but it's important for those nations, uh, particularly for these reasons. Right. And what is the sentiment like over in Japan about this? In America, it seems like people are pretty unified against uh, Russia's action here. And it's like maybe the first issue that's really united all sides of the political aisle to a certain extent. Unless <laughs> unless you're a Tucker Carlson fan. Well, but in, in Japan, uh, how are people reacting? Uh, well, I haven't really seen much. I mean, from the people that I've talked to, they, they you know, um, more empathize with with Ukraine and um, you know don't see why you know this Russia would take these actions or you know don't think they're good actions to take. Um, so I think there's a there's a company here and I can't remember the name. It's it's one of pretty major companies was being um, kind of criticized for not going along with everyone else and pulling out of um, you know financial things with Russia. Um, but I know Japan is implementing a few sanctions um, against Russia as well. Um, but I don't, I don't know how, how strong those are. See, the issue also with sanctions is people on the ground tend to be affected by them sometimes more than the governments that they're intended to. Correct. Right? So how do we see that playing out? How do we see our lives here in America or even in Japan uh, being affected by this? Well, as I mentioned before, you know, I remember talking about um, friends in uh, Denmark um, and a lot of those European countries get a lot of um, oil from, uh, got a lot of energy from Russia yeah. and, you know, Denmark's one of them. And since they're having the sanctions, you know, some of the people are going to have to, are having to cut back. Um, you know, I, I would imagine that's going to be happening all over Europe. Um, you know, the U.S. not so much. I think, Andre, you said that we, you know, mentioned that the um, U.S. has stopped importing oil, but it's only 1% that we get from Russia. So it's not going to be any kind of you know, effect in the U.S. So, but for countries that use more, it'd be even bigger, I would imagine. Sure. Questions? Right. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that. I mean, it, it's a it's a powerful gesture in and of itself. 
I do think, you know, for, for us to kind of uh, make this a marked line saying that at no point will we be exporting any oil nor any ships uh, that are utilizing uh, Russian oil can dock in the United States. There's, you know, there are a lot of things that come with that, right? Uh, and the fact that it's, uh, you know, uh, that it's connected and we've kind of synergized with other countries to do the same is going to be very, very interesting. And yeah. I, I, I do want to, though, say that with everything that's going to be happening, and of course, our hearts go out mm -hmm. to, to the Ukrainian people, you know, but people do need to remember that there are a lot of good Russians out there that are protesting in the streets and stuff. And there are a lot of poor Russians that are going to, that have nothing to do with this war. They're going to just starve to death now that the, the economy there is going to plummet. And it's just, it's a tragedy all around. You know what I mean? It's just, it's very, very sad. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, How do yeah, you see that play out? What is, what is the end game here? I mean, it's not going to play out well uh, for anybody that's expecting a happy ending. It's just, it won't happen um, unless somebody close to Putin ends up killing him tomorrow or within next month. I, I don't, I don't see any of these things really happening. I see that uh, at some point Russia will take Kiev and at some point they will try to install a puppet government. And, uh, you know, Zelensky will probably at some point will have to flee the country. You know, and it's going to be very, very sad the, the next month of events. Uh, and I, I see a lot of a lot more people dying, a lot more innocent civilians dying. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that the American government thus far has been handling it well? I don't think that there's that much that can be done. I think that we should we need to. It, the thing that really annoys me is that our last tactic is to hurt the actual uh uh the actual people that are involved right like we are specifically specifically targeting the bank accounts of a lot of oligarchs that are in putin's inner circle we are not in fact targeting putin directly and that seems to be something that i don't like i understand that it's the last strategy in, in diplomacy but at this point why not the man has probably $250 billion in personal assets squirreled away and hidden amongst different uh, different counterparts. Start start actually hurting his bottom line. Start hurting him. I, you know, that that's about it. It's a conscious decision to spare him at this point. No, I think what's what's the point at this juncture? Why not? But do you think that they're they're not targeting targeting him consciously? Like they they just, are. They're they're not targeting him consciously. They're saying that that is the last kind of uh, the last thing that they can do, and I don't think so. I think they should be doing it now. I think there's plenty of money that you can start taking away. Yeah. Now, I, I agree with you. I think I think I mean at some point Russia is going to take Kiev, and um, you know I don't I don't see Ukraine coming out on top of this. Um, I mean you'd hope or you'd hope it would end, um, but I think they're going to, but then that also is gonna to lead to um, resistance fighting even more once they do take it, because people are gonna to wanna to take it back. Um, no, I mean, yeah, correct. There's no way you can hold it uh, with the people this willing to fight for their homeland and their culture and their existence. It's just, you know, but again, you've, you've seen what, what this kind of uh, uh, takeover, how it looks when you have, um when you have people who really want to fight back but it, you know it, it becomes just a, a really kind of uh a, a terror inside the kind of walls man you know what i mean like killing off any kind of uh cultural authorities you know and all of this type of stuff you can look at how the communists held the czech republic you know and and it, i think it's gonna be clo closer to that than anything else now does this break russia though like you got all the financial, a lot of these financial places around the world are cutting off ties. You know, MasterCard and, and Visa, I believe, also cut off ties, and all these other countries have got sanctions. Like, does this, does this ruin Russia financially? Because um, you know, that's that's a you lot. Know, you know, you know, it's funny. All these companies are pulling out. Uh, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and Starbucks said they're going to just pause services. They're going to pause. 
Right. Like that pause button. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now I, I do have a wonder, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Belarus has allowed Russia to launch troops from there. And so right. how much how much do we hold, you know, do people hold Belarus um for being complicit in, in some I mean they're, they're fully complicit. But I haven't seen people talking about sanctions or anything against Belarus unless I'm I'm missing anything. Um, I mean, I'm assuming I'm assuming that that it's it's part of the package, but then again, that's an assumption. Who knows? I I don't think that has the same economic or any kind of impact either. I mean, that might be part of it, but obviously that wouldn't be the headline, right? It's not nearly the same as targeting Russia. Right. But it, I mean, it could give, you know, if people were sanctioning Belarus um, and there's much smaller country, much smaller economy that could hurt them a little bit more and make them possibly rethink their support um, of what's going on and at least take like a neutral stance. Like, OK, look, we can't afford this. Um, Putin, you're going to have to figure something else out or whatever. Do we anticipate I mean, any kind of military response from the rest of the world? Obviously, most Americans don't want to get involved, and I don't think we're we're headed that way. But uh, is, is any European country going to do anything? And what's, what's happening? So you, so you have to remember. So in Belarus, you have Alexander Lukashenko, who's the president, who has quite literally been the president since the country became an autonomous state in 1994. Mm. So at that given juncture, I don't think he really cares because look, you also have to understand both the positions of like Lukashenko and Vladimir Putin. Their only ways that they leave is to go to prison momentarily until they are killed. That is it. That's like, that's the retirement package. At some point, we don't not, you know, at some given juncture, Vladimir Putin will be killed within his own country. Because at some point, you know what I mean? Like you just can't hold on to that power. It, you know, it could happen at any given juncture. It's like that super volcano underneath Yellowstone National Park, right? Like it could go off in a week. It could happen in 10,000 years, but at some point it's going off. With, you know, with Vladimir Putin, thankfully the timelines are a little bit shorter than, you know, the Yellowstone, uh, uh, Super volcano. There was an article in City and State talking about how New York's economy is comparable to Russia's economy, and New York itself, as a state, could do a lot of economic damage to Russia. I found that interesting, just kind of put kind of put things in, in perspective, and also how that affects uh, us. I mean, it's you know, New York is really at, at the at the forefront of of American economics, the economic engine of our country, and so we are, are perhaps uh, even more invested in this than other parts of the country might be. Sure. Mm. Yeah. This is, yeah, it's a, it, now, do you have any uh, family or connection in, in Ukraine? So, uh, yeah, so I have, I still have family in Ukraine and in Russia. And, uh, you know, uh, at this point, you know, uh, all of that is, is very, very difficult, you know, and uh, uh, even with, with folks that are, you know, in Russia, uh, you're not able to speak about the war or anything else of that sort. Most calls are getting cut uh, and, you know, everything is being listened to. So it's just, you know, all it is very, very difficult in terms of communications or anything else. That's uh, we're going to keep them in our thoughts and prayers and hope for the best. I mean, it really is terrible to be in a position like this because we feel helpless. I mean, I think a lot of people would like to be able to do more, say more, and make more of, a, of an impact on this, but we're kind of watching helplessly and then with fear, quite frankly. You know, it's, it's a terrible situation. Yeah, and the thing, the thing that you would think, and I think a lot, um, you know, a lot of people assume that in this in this day and age, this modern day and age, that we wouldn't be seeing a country, like the world wouldn't allow a country to just invade another country and take, like you would think in this modern day that that wouldn't be allowed, you know, with all the different coalitions and all the different powers and all this, that someone would be like, okay, hey, you can't do that, stop. Um, but I mean, we've seen Russia do it with Crimea. 
um, now they're going there. Um, so the question then becomes, yeah, but I mean, you know, but this, this continues to happen. I mean, like I said, China with Tibet, right. You have Russia with Georgia, you know right. what I mean? So these, these things are continuous and constant, you know what I mean? We just, uh, give ourselves a long enough time to kind of forget about the last conflict. And that's what, you know, a lot of these tyrannical leaders kind of expect that at some point history will wait them out. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and it, our short attention span. And, and I'm know. sure I'm sure China's sitting over there and we're like, well, hey, if the world's not going to do anything, we can go ahead and get Taiwan like we wanted. And they so, flew military. They flew military planes over Taiwan on the first day of the Ukrainian uh, invasion. That's right. Yeah. I think that's another thing that people are, are, you know, some people are looking at, especially if I were in Taiwan, that would be a real concern right now. No, I mean, I've been talking about this for, for the last decade or so when, when people talk about foreign policy, you know what I mean? Vladimir Putin in, uh, uh, in Russia is our biggest enemy and biggest threat to the world in the short term. But Xi Jinping in China is our, the biggest threat to the world in the long term. So, and that's, that's really what you're going to have to take a look at. And, and, and unfortunately, there's really nothing you're going to ever be able to do with China at this point. So, you know. Good luck, folks. That's an interesting one. Now, Jay, I sent you something in the email before because apparently this uh, whole Facebook action where they're trying to take greater precautions on certain accounts comes from fear that Russia is going to hack the 2022 midterms. And so they're trying to provide extra layers of security on accounts that they've identified as being um, I don't know. I think they use the words words influential or um, having having the potential to reach a large audience. And I think they've also specified community leaders and people in politics. And so I got this email. I forwarded it to. You. I thought it was a hack. I, I actually thought it, it in itself was an attempt to hack me because it, it came from FacebookMail.com. I was like, click here to add security to your account. But then I was researching it further, and apparently, it's a legitimate thing that Facebook is doing. That they're trying to add these extra layers. Uh, to certain people's accounts because they're afraid of hacking from Russia specifically. Well, Russia has been through this conflict. They've stepped up their their cyber um, efforts as well. Like even uh, people were calling it out. I saw on Twitter people were calling it out because there are a bunch of accounts that were repost that were posting the exact same thing, very pro Russia messages about this this conflict and. The messages were pretty much identical and they were spread across like all these different Twitter accounts that were basically bot accounts. And, you know, and it started to trend. So you had these positive messages for Russia about this conflict that started to trend because of all this stuff is going on. So, you know, I, I'm sure that, you know, on other platforms, they're, you know, using other tactics as well, because they also have to not just I mean, they're they're, you know, in the conflict militarily, but. They're, they're losing the uh, the war in the media and the minds and, and, and the people around the world. So they've got to combat that. Social media is going to be one of the ways. That and that's do. interesting because we talk about how Russia or, or, or operatives in Russia were instrumental in causing a lot of division in the United States, especially leading up to the 2016 election. Now, uh, I don't know if you call it ironic or, or what, but uh, because of this conflict, you're seeing some of that division erode. Of course, we're still very divided as a people. It's not pretend that we're not. But at least on this one issue, people are starting to come together. And again, I haven't seen that in a long time. People on both sides of the aisle agreeing on something, right? And it seems like they're uh, unified to the extent that they're against Russia in this particular conflict. So um, that's got to be a cause of concern for them if their intent is to keep us divided. Right. I will say this. Can I, can I play the cynic for a quick second? Sure. So like it's, war is good for the GOP to distract from the buffoonery that is Donald Trump leading their party. And uh, war is good for the DNC to kind of boost up potentially Biden's ratings before the midterm and make people forget that, you know, build it back hasn't been a humongous success. Uh, and the Voting Rights Act didn't pass. You know, so just saying, you know what I mean? Like that's, it's a, it's a good time to unify behind a war. No, I think there's something to that, that historically 
people in power do well when there is war, unfortunately. And we've seen it happen over and over again. Look what happened in 04 with Bush. No, I'm just, you know, look, I'm just hoping that if this is going to be a long, long thing, right, that it's going to, that if, if this, if this uh, uh, is still going on after the midterms, that I'm hoping that either party doesn't forget about it. Yeah, and then, and I think that's that's a pretty legitimate question. Um, at what point do, does the you know the minds of the populace look for the next thing um, to where this has gone on so long that it's just like okay, um, you know, um, it becomes relegated to side news. I'm just saying, man, Donda 2 can be amazing and people forget about the war entirely. Um, it's it's out people... now. I don't, think, I don't think it's getting that, but... <laughs> I see people making posts on social media like, you know, they had us talking about COVID all day long and now it's World War III. It's always something, you know? So people are very, very cynical in the way they look at these things now. So... Yeah, and, and it's, you know, it's the, you know using a, an old black sheep um, phrase, it's the flavor of the month, you know? Um, how, like I said, how long before the social media minds or whatever move on to the next big thing that happens, you know? I mean, I know even people don't, people take up these types of interests and, and these, these fights um, because it's what's happening in the now without the realization or the understanding fully that it's a long-term sort of uh, fight progress. And it's the same thing with, um, you know, when George Floyd was killed, you know, there was everybody wanted to do something in the BLM type of movement and into the police brutality type of movement. You know, now people are just like, eh, you know, it's back to what it was before. It's hard to get people to, to participate or to talk about something because it's, it's not a, a thing that could be fixed now. It's something that is a sustained effort and it, you know, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes participation. And so, you know, this is not going to be, this war is not going to be something that resolves. Even, you know, Putin takes Kiev, you know, like we said, there's going to be people still trying to fight for their country and people still going to be dying. And attention from the world might be, it might be the third story. It might not be the first story anymore. And it might be the fourth story after that, you know. And right. Well, on that point, Timid, one thing that we don't see as high up in the news anymore is the president's Supreme Court pick. You would yeah. think it would be a major story, and it's kind of fallen by the wayside. But we did want to discuss that a little bit, namely the strategy behind announcing in advance that he was going to choose a Black woman. Do we agree with that particular approach? For me, personally, I don't like that he announced that it's going to be a Black woman. Not that, that it shouldn't, that, that he, you know, a black woman should be excluded. I think if she's a great pick, he should definitely choose that. Um, and it seems like she is a very good pick. Um, but to say specifically, I'm only going to choose a black woman, I have an issue with that. I think he shouldn't have announced it. If he was going to do it, then go ahead and do it. Just this is my pick, you know, by, but by saying this is what I'm going to choose. I'm only going to choose a black woman. It's it doesn't really sit well. It also kind of feels like she's a token to that degree, or at least it sounds that way. Um, and I don't think her qualifications warrant that her being a token. Like she's very, she's qualified for what position and whatnot, but it just, I don't think it's something, you know, that should have been announced that way. It's just like when people say, I want a woman president. Well, I mean, I understand that there's these glass ceilings and these things that, that haven't happened, but I mean, to say that, just any woman will do or any black woman will do like we you know that needs to be you know and, and that's not what's being said i mean obviously president biden didn't say any black woman will do but no that's kind of the perception then if you lead so yeah i mean look i i i think i agree i agree with timid i well what i would like to say is that i think that he shouldn't have announced that it was going to be a black woman i think he should have just announced a black woman and that would have been great right, right. uh Having said that, I mean, look, I understand the way that this process works. The the media always gets like your top five choices or whatever so that they can parse them out and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I do understand that they had to kind of do something in terms of, you know, the in, in terms of the way that they did it. But I look, I, I look forward to uh, a Supreme Court Justice Jackson. You know, I think that's great.
absolutely. Do you think it was an issue when Reagan said he wanted to pick a woman? Uh, he just focused obviously on a gender. Um, is it more of a problem when you bring the race into it or was that problematic as well? I, I still think just that, I don't know, to announce that it's going to be that is what I have an issue with, whether it's the just the gender or the race. Like if he was going to nom, you know, Reagan was going to nominate a woman, he didn't have to say, I'm going to nominate a woman. He just, a nominator, you know, same with Biden. If he was going to nominate a black woman, just nominate her. Don't say, be like, yo, I have, I have this, this justice that I want, that I'm nominating. This is who I'm putting forth. And, you know, nominate her on her merits, not on her merits of being, not on being a, a black woman specifically to fix this box. And so that was- What if that was a promise that he made in order to secure the votes and the endorsements necessary for the votes in South Carolina? Uh, in other words, what if he had to make that promise, um, which resulted in him, of course, becoming the nominee and ultimately winning the general election? Do you think it was worth it to make that promise then? Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I can, and I can see that, but he didn't have, my thing is he didn't have to announce that, right? Even if he made he that promise, he probably could have just announced his pick and fulfilled the promise, right? Right. Yeah, that would have, that would have been fine. And I, and, and I completely understand the importance of, of the Black woman, especially in the Democratic vote. They've done a lot of heavy lifting, especially in these last couple of elections. And so that, that demographic, that group is very um, important to to the DNC um, and yeah, those interests should be taken seriously. It just, I didn't think it was necessary to say, I'm going to nominate a black woman, just nominate the black woman, just nominate her. And then- Right, well, I think also, you know, cause there, I think there are two sides to this. Like number one is what is morally right. And number two, what is politically correct or what looks good. Um, but that's important as well. I don't want to dismiss that as not being a valid concern. You have to try to get people to support what you're doing. And I think that's a big part of, of what the Democrats uh, face right now is that they're not always good on messaging and right. like, they're divisive um, in their rhetoric. And I think maybe this kind of falls in that category. Uh, the reason why, in my opinion, we're seeing so much visceral uh, opposition to this is because he said it was going to be a Black woman in advance. But if right. he would have nominated her, I think that would have taken some, I mean, maybe not all, but I think at least some of that opposition away. We kind of would have taken that bullet out of the opposition's chamber a little bit, right? Well, they, they would have still, uh, if we're Absolutely. honest, they would have still, if he would have just done it, there would have been people saying, oh, he's doing it to appease this group. He's trying to be woke. And it's, I mean, that would have come regardless, but not as much, I, think, I think doing it that way, um, if he would have just nominated her and then, then they come out with that response, then that highlights them, a failure with them and the way that they think versus the way that he did it. Now they can point to and say, oh, see, well, now he's specifically picking because of this specific race and that's not right. So they have a little bit more of a kind of legitimate argument against what he's, how he's done it. If they would have just come out, oh, he's trying to be woke. It's like, well, now you're making it up because you have no basis on that. You don't know, you know. So, you know, that's, that was, on my only issue with, I don't have any issue with, with her and, and I hope she wins. I think it's a good, you know, a good pick. It's a good move for, for Biden and for the country and, you know, all of that. But, yeah. One last question on this. Do you think it was a mistake or he shouldn't have announced that he was going to pick a woman for vice president? I say, I had the same reaction as, as this was like, you know, if you're going to do it, that's great. But, and I think he even said, he said a woman, but I think he even said a black woman at this at that time as well. Um, and I had the same reaction, like, just do it. Don't announce that it's going to be a black woman or a woman. Just this is my vice president, vice president pick. This is who right. I'm going. And people always like to make the point that it should be the most qualified person. But I don't think we, we disagree with that. It's, it's just that there are oftentimes a lot of qualified people. And it's yeah. not right that oftentimes the person chosen is is a white male. So I mean, more diversity is a thing, but it's all about optics and, and the way you do it as well. That's that's what I think. And and sure, the Supreme Court um, should reflect this, the diversity of the country. I mean, there, there are different things on the Supreme Court that are, you know, leaning to one way, you know. Um, and so it's, you know, her being on the Supreme Court will be a positive thing. But again, it's, you know, how it's how it was announced. That was that was my only kind of 
negative not i don't know if i want to say negative just kind of just like uh yeah yeah all right last topic we wanted to get into something local i know you found an article that they're raising crosswalks in new york city what is this about yeah so that that article came out um yesterday um saying that i guess the mayor is uh uh, proposing this initiative or going forward with this initiative with the Department of Transportation. They're going to raise crosswalks. I didn't see how high they're going to raise them, but um, apparently they're trying to curb um, accidents uh, in, in the city and they're going to raise crosswalks for about uh, what 100 different crosswalks a year is, is their plan. They're starting with four, I guess, as a pilot program of sorts. Do you have that article in front of you? Because there were some alarming things in the article. Number one, let's see if I can pull it up here, but number one was that we had a staggering number of people killed by cars in New York City last year. I think the highest since 2013. And that kind of jumps out at us because the city implemented its Vision Zero plan under Mayor de Blasio a number of years back with the intention of reducing deaths, uh, pedestrians dying at the hands of motor vehicles. Um, and apparently it, it didn't work out the way we wanted it to last year. Uh, since 2013, we've had our highest rate of people killed on the street. Um, of course, the question is, does raising the crosswalk uh, fix that? I mean, it, it might look at it like a, a, a hefty expense here, and I don't know if you're getting what you want with it. I mean, is it going to act like a speed bump as well to slow cars down? Yeah, in that article, it did say that, you know, it kind of functions a little bit like that, but like how high are they raising it? I think, you know, it I just I don't I think it sounds more like a a waste of money because one of the things it said it was be more visible, but pedestrians it's still right? it's still on the ground. Well, I don't know if it's more visible pedestrians. I don't think the issue is that pedestrians don't see that there's a crosswalk. I mean, we clearly can see that it's more the cars hitting the. If it's raised, I mean, this is what I was thinking of when I first read it. We have to see more about this, of course. But I was sure, sure. if they're maybe not paying attention, if they're looking at their phones or something. If they're stepping into the crosswalk, maybe if it's higher, they'll feel it more onto their feet. I don't know. I think it's still, you know, the car is still hitting them though. Like crosswalk, whether they're looking the down idea or is not. Maybe if, if they were about to jaywalk, if there are cars coming, they realize they're on the crosswalk, now they go back to the sidewalk, no? Um, I mean, it's gonna be, it would be incredible to me if they just raised the crosswalk lines, right? And people would just be stumbling all over and stuff, yeah. not paying attention. Yeah, a late night after after the bar or something. That's right. Talking. Yeah. And now the street's not not even level anymore. It's... That's right. Yeah. 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 Well, these I, are the I, four yeah. areas. <laughs> these are the four areas that they've announced uh, will be getting the first uh, raised crosswalk. So I guess we'll see how it plays out and how it works for them. Uh, it's Elm Avenue and Coney Island Avenue in Brooklyn, 69th Place, Juniper Valley Road and 69th Street in Queens, Martha Street and Howard Avenue in Staten Island and East 158th Street and Caldwell Avenue in the Bronx. So if you live around there, I guess you'll be experiencing the raised crosswalks sometime soon. Oh, another, another article, by the way, I gotta find this, but apparently they just did a study of the most calls about loud sex noises throughout the city and Queensboro ended up having the, uh, the most calls uh, out of any other one. People complain, so it leaves like 311 calls? Yeah, yeah. So apparently Queens was number one, Manhattan was two, uh, uh, then Bronx, then Kings County, and Staten Island coming in last. It's kind of an odd stat to track, isn't it? I mean, it depends on how much is going down in Queens, I guess. Yeah, apparently. But uh, so I got to find and send this article to you. But apparently one of the most raucous ones and the, the one specific person who made the most calls was somebody off Cross Bay. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got to send it to you. In our district? Somebody in our district, yep. Oh somebody God. in our district by like by like 17th Street or something. I guess should Queens, if, if it's going down that much that it uh, it made an article because of people are making these calls, I mean, should Queens change its uh, its slogan for the type of borough they are? Queens is for lovers, busy. baby. Virginia, yeah, Virginia's got nothing on us. Queens Apparently is not. Well, speaking of loud noise, there's a new state law that's going into effect um, requiring cop cars to have decibel readers in them so that they can, <laughs> whether uh, modified vehicles and, and their mufflers are making too much noise. And there's also now a decibel. Oh, I thought you were going in a completely different direction. I thought they were going to be like, you know, cop cars going by, checking the decibels <laughs> of the houses. 
Like if you get a citation because you're making too much sick your sex noises are hitting the decibel meter, do you take that as pride? You probably, yeah, you probably frame that ticket, right? Like and put it in your house somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, I mean some of those, some of those mufflers, yeah, can be can get quite outrageous, those motorcycles especially. Right. And the law used to be if it made uh, you know unnecessary or an excessive noise, which is very vague, and so a lot of people weren't ticketed for that because it's, it's very it's extremely subjective. So now there's an actual decibel limit in the law, and cops are required to have decibel readers in their cars, so this can be measured. Hopefully, that does something about it because people are, in all seriousness, are kept up all night from the noise of the loud mufflers going back and forth in many areas. And and it bothers my dog. Oh, we can't have that. No. Not at all. Can't have that at all. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, you, you also want to wonder, like, you know, what things can you limit? And, and or dog is sleeping, yeah. See, if a loud car goes by, then she wakes up as a problem. Wakes up as a problem, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you, Timid, and, and you always have to t kind of think about what are the limits of what you should be legislating, right? right. You think that this is a serious issue and it's something right. that we should measure. It shouldn't just be, do we think it sounds too loud for us tonight? <laughs> it's, you know, whose call is that? That should be a natural number that you can read. And and listen, I understand it. They can get so loud. Some of those motorcycles can get so loud where you can't even hear the person talking next to you. Um, but, you know, it, it, yeah, it, I think there should be some kind of, uh, I'm sure there are some kind of guideline to what's uh, it's acceptable or not. Well, right now. It's, a, yeah. it's a new state law. Yeah. Yeah, license if they perform these illegal modifications. Right. Yeah. Great discussion, everybody. Any closing thoughts? Hopefully, we're still on the air next week. I know we had a potty mouth, Andre, but it's all good. <laughs> I don't know. Not listening to Donda. I'm, I'm good. This is the benefit of being on Facebook and not, not on TV or radio. We have that leeway here. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I definitely appreciate um, Andre coming on and uh, your thoughts, especially being close to what's happening to uh, in Ukraine and in that area and having some of that history. I definitely appreciate absolutely. hearing that. So, well, thank you guys for having me. You guys are tremendous hosts, uh, and I hope to come back on in the future. Excellent. Thank you all. Have a great night. We'll see you next week. <laughs>